Good morning, Grace Church. Are you glad to be in the house of the Lord today? Oh my goodness, the worship thus far has been extraordinary. Praise the Lord. He is worthy of all of it and so much more. Well, today marks four months, and this is the 13th message to get us to the end of this book called the book of Titus. I feel so sad. Every time I come to the end of an expository series where I'm doing a book of the Bible, whether it be Habakkuk, one of those Old uh, Testament minor prophets, or the book of Galatians, or James, every time I come to the end of one of these, it's, it's like, like, well, it's like sending my child off to school and I won't see them anymore. It, it's just, it's like I'm, I'm saying goodbye to a good friend. And uh, I have so enjoyed getting to know Titus uh, through these many weeks that we've worked our way through this. I hope that you have been challenged by the truths found in this remarkable little book. But we have come to the end of it today, and we're going to unpack uh, part of the ending. I won't have time to do it all. I know that from the first service. It didn't work out, so that's okay. I'll give you as much as we got this, uh, this t for today. But what I'd like to do before I move into the message today is I want to give you a little peek into where we're going over the next few weeks together. Actually, the next couple of months together. I find it's always helpful to kind of let people know where we're going so that we can all kind of go there together with a sense of knowledge. So beginning next Sunday, we're actually going to begin a several-week series called Who Do You Think You Are? Who do you think you are? And based upon that answer, whatever hat we wear in that identity means that we are responsible to do such things. So we're going to unpack some of the ways that we have an identity in Christ, a hat we wear in Christ. Here's a little snippet of where we're going. I am outgoing. I am exciting. I am Courtney Skinner. I am a hairstylist. I am Arlie Smart. I am a chef, I am a father, I am a foster father, I am an instructor. Uh, my name is Danny Eastman, I'm a general contractor, I am a father, I am a carpenter, I am a Christian. Coming as soon as next Sunday! And so we're going to start unpacking these ideas that are clearly taught in the scriptures. Next week, we're going to talk about I am a disciple. If you know Jesus Christ, that means you've joined him as a disciple. Next week is going to be powerful, just a heads up. Uh, and then we're going to talk about I am an ambassador. And it just so happens that Elisha comes home from Peru uh, this Friday. And I'm going to have him share a little bit of what God has been using him to do in that message on I am an ambassador. And then we're going to talk about I am a masterpiece that will come from Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. But notice, there's a gap between August the 6th and August the 27th. There's a couple of weeks in there between masterpiece, overcomer, and salt and light that uh, actually some cool stuff is going on. Because after church on the 6th, after we talk about being a masterpiece, a work of art, we get a chance to rip the carpet out of this sanctuary and throw these chairs. Well, we won't throw them away, but we'll get them out of here. And we're going to turn this place into a work of art throughout that week as we take the time to invest the monies that you have dedicated to this project. We are going to remake this area. So on the 13th, we get to rejoice together in this updated new space that we're creating. My challenge is this. Elisha is to be at Moody Bible Institute on Sunday the 13th. 
So that means that my wife and I are going to take Elisha on the Friday before that, and we're going to drive to Chicago, which means Pastor Dennis is going to be up here sharing uh, with you on that day, and there's nobody who deserves more right to speak on that day to get this place done up than Dennis, because nobody's pushed harder to get this section done, and so he has every right to do that. The next week is going to be GCA uh, Teacher Appreciation Sunday, and, and Pastor uh, Steve Salvis is going to be speaking on that day. So there's a couple of weeks Bambi and I are Way, but we know things are in great hands, and by the time we get back, this place is going to be, we won't even recognize it. It'll be so awesome. So that's coming up. Now, a lot of this work, creating spaces to belong, creating the space over again, to make it easier for people to connect and to journey with us, is really tied into the emphasis we have as a church of trying to connect people to belong so they can believe to help people who are thinking and questioning belong long enough with us to understand the truth and the beauty of the gospel found in Jesus Christ, that they will embrace him with their lives. With that in mind, when we get into the month of September, we're going to be doing Back to Church Sunday again. We've done this every year since I've been here, and it happens to fall on September the 17th. I know that's fair day in, in the county. I get that. We will do our best to accommodate uh, that. But on the 17th, we're going to have a, a series start that day called A Place to Belong. But the day before, on September the 16th, we are going to have GC Bacon Fest 2017. Yes, we're going to hit the big soccer field and we're going to have a pig roast, a barbecue, burgers, hot dogs, bouncers, games, dunk tank, and live music. All of that is intended for us to connect our unchurched family members into that environment. Have a great time. How many like bacon? Three of us. Oh, come on. How many like bacon? You know what? I, I do the devotions uh, one Wednesday every month over at uh, the Catherine Foundation, the Crisis Pregnancy Center here in Waldorf. And I was over there this past Wednesday, and I was telling the ladies about us giving to the men on Father's Day bacon. And they were all like, oh. That's so awesome. They said, what did you give the women? I, I said, on Mother's Day, we gave them the little purses that I gave you the last time I was here. They were like, oh, that's right. We didn't get bacon. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, everybody likes bacon, amen? So yes, uh, Jesus died in, on the cross to deal with the ceremonial law, which means we can eat bacon today. Yes. So uh, all that to say, we're hosting this special time on the soccer field. We'll talk a lot more about this as we get closer but it's really designed to invite friends, hang out with us, eat with us, laugh with us, get wet in the dunk tank with us. It's going to be a great time. And then we encourage them, come to church tomorrow. Because tomorrow, Pastor Bill is going to be talking about grace is a place to belong. And I will. We'll talk from Acts chapter 2 just briefly about what the church is meant to be. The church is a redemptive, exciting, authentic, loving real community of people who are seeking to love one another and love others. And so we're going to actually unpack that in the preceding weeks from September the 17th. And I got Courtney uh, already with the scriptures that she's going to be working toward and in, 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 uh, working out some small group notes for that season as well. So, a lot on the offing, a lot going on. A remake of the sanctuary, we're going to have a big party on the soccer field. It's all leading up to the kickoff to uh, this series called real community. So I hope you're excited. I hope you're thinking this is where I want to be going because here we go. We're going to be going together, I pray, down this way. Okay, all that to say today, 
we are going to finish up with this thing called the book of Titus. I have to do this one more time because I can't do it anymore after today. So I'm going to do it. Here we go. Titus, your mission, and you cannot refuse it, is to go all over the island of Crete and to install qualified leadership in the churches whose goal is to teach God's people how to live godly lives of good works in a lost and pagan world. And praise be to God, that message did not self-destruct. But God the Holy Spirit kept it for us to enjoy and grow and learn from throughout these last few weeks. And so today, we bring it to a conclusion. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be focusing in on Titus chapter 3, verses 5, I'm sorry, verses 8 through 15. Verses 8 through 15. Here we go. Allow me to read these words. Titus, says Paul. Titus, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, now this is a pretty stern warning. After warning that person once, and then warning them a second time, Titus, tell the people on the island of Crete in the churches to have nothing more to do with that person, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, and they are self-condemned. Now he's got this little bit of business to do with him, and he kind of sticks that in here at verse 12. When I send Artemis or Tychidus to you, he's not even sure which one he's going to send to him yet, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis, for I, Paul, have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best also to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Now, kind of as an addendum to finish off, he says this, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me, said Paul, are sending their greetings to you, Titus. Greet also those who love us in the faith there on the island of Crete. Grace be with you all. And all God's people said, Amen. That is the end of the letter called Titus, Paul's communication to his young protege on the island of Crete. As is often the case when a person has an important conversation or correspondence with a friend, the most personal and sometimes the most urgent concerns are reiterated at the end. And that really seems to be the case here in Paul's writing to Titus. I want you to notice what Paul's emphasizing. Hey, Titus, I want you to tell those who believe in God to be careful to devote themselves to good works. Again, verse 14. Hey, Titus, let our people, those who love Christ, learn to devote themselves to good works. So what Paul is doing as he concludes this letter, it's the old TMT, I-T-K, TMT, TMT. By that, I mean this. Hey, Titus. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. 
And that's how Paul ends this. He wants the people of God who through faith in Jesus Christ have become his to go on to live lives of becoming good and doing good all for the glory of God. That our very lives would adorn the gospel of God's grace by living lives characterized by good works. So if you will, as he ends this letter, one of the most dominant themes in the book of Titus is this idea of good works. Six times in a little letter, good works, good works, good works, good works, good works. Tell our people how they live matters because the gospel is so desperately needed by people around them. Let me pray for us, and then I'm going to hit, <laughs> we'll do what we can, and we'll go from there. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for the worship that we've already enjoyed this morning. And thank you likewise for the chance to uh, kind of tie a bow on the book of Titus. I pray that now that we've kind of uh, exposed the text, that perhaps we can go back to it and look at it in, in hindsight, in our personal lives and in our times with you, and just kind of reread it to see how the Spirit of God might speak into each one of our personal lives as to how you want us to live. I just really pray, Father, that uh, the exhortation today uh, would, would meet a need and draw us closer to you. May we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I had high and lofty goals for today, and I realized that they were too high and too lofty and too long. Uh, my original intent today was to kind of say, okay, devote yourselves to good works, and I was going to kind of knock this out of the park, you know, we're going to talk about the doctrinal side of good works, the role they play in our relationship with God, and then we're going to spend some time talking practically about how good works, how we're to learn to do good works and become good people. Well, all that to say, if you've looked at your clocks, I've not got time to do all that. So I'm going to tackle the first thing first, and believing that God is going to use it for his own plans beyond anything I may have prepared, and uh, see how God chooses to use this in our midst. So what we're going to do is kick off by looking at this thing called the doctrinal or theological side, the moral side of good works. What role do good works actually play in our relationship with God. And the reason I want to take some time on this is because virtually everybody gets this wrong. And it's too important to get wrong. And so the challenge is this in most religions and in, and in most people's thinking, what they end up doing is they literally put the cart before the horse when it comes to good works in a relationship with God. And sadly, if you get this wrong, you get it eternally wrong. So we're going to spend a few minutes kind of understanding how good works fit in our relationship with God. So let me begin here. Um, this is a picture of a man many of you know quite well. It, this is a picture of the late Muhammad Ali. Uh, he is Muhammad Ali instead of Cassius Clay because he converted to Islam early on in his life. Um, he had a famous quote, you know, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Remember that? Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. There's no one as good as Muhammad Ali, or at least that's what he hopes. Let me explain. 
Back in the late 90s, a man by the name of William Plummer wrote an article in People Weekly concerning uh, Muhammad Ali in an interview he had with him. And this is what uh, the, guy, the man wrote. He said, suffering from symptoms of Parkinson's disease, Ali joked saying, hey, it's a blessing. And then he went on to say this. I'm always like chasing the girls. Parkinson stopped all that. Now I might have a chance to go to heaven, is what he said in this article. The former boxing champ sees his disease as creating another destiny for him. Ali's travels have taken him uh, in various parts of the world for uh, charity benefits. Such organizations as UNICEF, the Franciscan Sisters, the Poor, Best Buddies. Wherever he is, he just plunges in amongst the sick and the poor, offering himself as a vehicle for worldwide healing. He went on to say this, Ali did of himself. He said, with everything I do, he said, I ask myself, will God accept this? One day I will wake up and it will be judgment day. So you need to do good deeds. I love going to hospitals. I love sick people. I don't worry about disease. You see, Muhammad Ali being part of Islam, one of the five tenets of Islam is something called charity. Compulsory acts of good and giving to achieve a right standing before their God, Allah. So somehow, doing all this good is meant to merit or earn Allah's favor, even though he is so capricious, all you can really do is be obedient, pray, and hope. So that's Islam's take on good works and how they fit in a relationship with God. You better do them because that's really the only hope you've got. Let me give you an image of another guy, and some of you will recognize this guy. Many of you won't. You're too young to recognize this guy. Uh, his name is Jerry Lewis. How many of you know Jerry Lewis? Yeah, all the old people raise their hands. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Jerry Lewis is 92 years old now. And uh, Jerry Lewis is also well-known as an individual who does sacrificial and tireless work on behalf of the disadvantaged. For 45 years, Jerry Lewis was the chairman of the MDA, the Muscular Dystrophy Association. And every Labor Day weekend, he raised millions of dollars by putting on his telethon. How many used to watch the MDA telethon? Awesome! I can remember watching it too. We had four channels back in that day, and it was the only thing interesting on during Labor Day weekend. So I used to watch Jerry Lewis do all this. So he obviously is retired from that because of his age and his uh, failing abilities. But over those 45 years, Jerry Lewis raised $2 billion for the MDA. He actually was actually nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts. The reason why Lewis did all of this, obviously apart from a, a love for the kids, it was obvious. He said this in an interview, Jerry Lewis, why do you go to all this trouble? And he gave back this answer. It's good mitzvah. Good mitzvah. Mitzvah is a good deed. Or it's the Hebrew word for command. It is doing the commands of God in order to gain a righteous standing before God. In other words, by doing good mitzvah, you can merit and earn the favor of God. Islam believes that. Judaism believes that. Let me throw one more guy in here. Uh, this guy is not religious, actually. But he just gave $3.2 billion to somebody as a gift. And I thought, well, this guy's obviously magnanimous. So let's throw him in the, the bailiwick here. So let me share with you an agnostic's view of things. This is Warren Buffett. 
the Oracle of Omaha. He was raised in Presbyterian church and background, but today he claims to be an agnostic. An agnostic is someone who doesn't believe there is no God, that's an atheist, but they just aren't sure. In fact, Buffett said this, he said, the nice thing about being an agnostic is you don't have to think anybody is wrong. Well, he joined something called the Giving Pledge, uh, done by Bill and Melinda Gates in their foundation. And the Giving Pledge is that you're going to give away your wealth for the needs of the world. And so he made that vow. And he vowed to give away 99% of his nearly $75 billion fortune before he dies. Can you imagine what good that can do in the world? I mean, $75 billion, healthcare, education around the world, clean water systems, immunization. That's all amazing stuff. This man is going to change a lot of people's lives. And, you know, people look at stuff like that, and they think, you know, if there's a God, he's got to be good with him. In fact, you know, Warren Buffett's no dummy. Uh, he has the world's largest financial services company called Berkshire Hathaway, and he didn't grow to be that great by, hedging, by not hedging his bets. So if there is a God, it certainly can't be bad to stand before him having given away 99% of my wealth. So who knows? It can't be so bad. This is how people believe about good works. Agnostics, uh, Judaism, Islam... Most people, most people believe that you can be good enough to merit or earn the favor and goodness of God. Uh, George Barna, the famous pollster, uh, did a poll of Americans. Everybody polls Americans. Uh, he got this kind of response. 53% of Americans believe that if a person is good enough or does enough good things for other people, that they can earn their way to heaven. 53% of Americans would say, if you're good, you're good with God. Sadly, of that number, one-third of those people who were polled described themselves as born-again people. 34% of those who would call themselves evangelicals, those who have been born again by the grace of God, also accept the idea that if a person does enough good, they will be looked upon favorably by God and given entrance into God's perfect holy presence. Where does this stuff come from? How do we get that idea? You know, I was thinking, but I think it's human nature, isn't it? You know, we have to work for everything else in life, don't we? I mean, if you, if you want to eat, you got to work. If you want to have a house, you got to work. If you want to have a car, you got to work. You got to work. You got to work. You got to work. And if you work well, we, we bless you with resources. We bless you with advances. We bless you with, with, with higher opportunities. So, how can you get heaven? How can you get a perfect standing before a holy God? And it's free. That is not intuitive. That doesn't make any sense based upon just basically who we are. I think most of us think that God is good. And if somebody is good, a good God would look at their goodness and let them into his presence. I think that's why we have this thing called eulogies. 
If you go to a funeral, you'll discover that part of the funeral is dedicated to people having remembrances of the departed. And, and what we do is we eulogize them. Uh, those two words actually come from the Greek, ou, being a prefix for good, and logize, having to, to speak. And so we speak good of the departed. As if we're basically saying, oh, he was a great guy, you know, if I needed a beer, he'd always give me one, you know, and, 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 you know, and he'd, give me, he'd pull my truck out of the mud one Thursday night, and, and he was just a good guy. And it's our way of saying, why wouldn't God let him into his presence? He's a good guy, right? I think that's how most people think. But does it work that way? Can it work that way? Much of the world says, yeah. Let me give you one other reason why I think it's a very dominant thinking in our world today. And that's because it is a dominant teaching in a branch of Christianity today. It comes out of the dogma or the teaching of something called the Roman Catholic Church. This book I have in my library is the Catechism of the Catholic Church designed to help people have, have brief answers to difficult questions. And uh, in this book, it states quite clearly that justification, God's declaration of being in a right standing before him, comes first of all through baptism. Paragraph 977 states this. Baptism is the first and chief sacrament of forgiveness of sins because it unites us with Christ. So in Roman Catholic dogma, justification is a process which begins with the removal of original sin through infant baptism. But that's just the beginning. Because paragraph 1212, 1212 says this. The faithful are born anew by baptism, strengthened by the sacraments of confirmation, and receive the Eucharist, which is the food of eternal life. By means of these sacraments of Christian initiation, they thus will receive an increasing measure of the treasure of the divine life in advancement toward the perfection of, of love. So in Catholic teaching, in Catholic mindset, in order to have a right standing before God, one must become righteous in their lives. And that righteousness is a process, a process of faith indeed, plus the sacraments, infant baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance, anointing for the sick, uh, sickness, uh, holy orders, matrimony. And then paragraph 1821 summarizes it very well. Then they are to persevere to the end and obtain the joy of heaven as an eternal reward for the good works accomplished with the grace of Christ. But even that isn't enough. Because then there's this whole thing called purgatory. So you have faith. You do all of these various and sundry uh, sacraments. And even then at the end of life, your sin is not removed. You're not perfectly holy. So you must go into a place called purgatory where the remainder of your sin is burned off you in order to put you in a right standing to stand before a holy God. And so the whole process ultimately breaks down to works. It is a works-based way of ultimately gaining the righteousness and favor and a positive standing before God. Is that 
what the scriptures say. You see, there are church traditions, and there are church dogma, and there are things that come down through the centuries. But the question always has to come back to, what does the Bible say? Because the Bible is the only source of, of ultimate understanding and knowledge that God has given to us. And so, there was a young monk who really struggled with this idea of justification by works. His name was Martin Luther. 500 years ago this October, Martin Luther nailed to the Wittenberg Castle door uh, this thing called the 95 Thesis, or if you will, Complaints Against the Roman Church. His desire was reformation of the church, but it ended in his excommunication from the church. Luther's greatest contention was the issue of how to be right or righteous before a holy God. And his epiphany came when he encountered Romans 1.17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Allow me to give a man of God an opportunity to speak into this. Uh, I think he does a fabulous job. He should. His name is R.C. Sproul. It says here in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. A verse taken from the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament that is cited three times in the New Testament. As Luther was stopped short, he said, what does this mean? That there's this righteousness that is by faith, and from faith to faith. What does it mean that the righteous shall live by faith? Which again, as I said, was the thematic verse for the whole exposition of the gospel that Paul sets forth here in the book of Romans. And so the lights came on for Luther and he began to understand that what Paul was speaking of here was a righteousness that God in his grace was making available to those who would receive it passively, not those who would achieve it actively, but that would receive it by faith and by which a person could be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. Now, there was a linguistic trick that was going on here, too. And it was this, that the Latin word for justification that was used at this time in church history was, I mean, it's the word from which we get the English word justification, the Latin word justificare. And it came from the Roman judicial system. And the term justificare is made up of the word justus, which is justice or righteousness, and the verb, the infinitive, facare, which means to make. And so the Latin fathers understood the doctrine of justification is what happens when God, through the sacraments of the church and elsewhere, make unrighteous people righteous. But Luther was looking now at the Greek word that was in the New Testament, 
not the Latin word, the word dikaios, dikaiosune, which didn't mean to make righteous, but rather to regard as righteous, to count as righteous, to declare as righteous. Amen. And this was the moment of awakening for Luther. He said, you mean here Paul is not talking about the righteousness by which God himself is righteous, but a righteousness that God gives freely by his grace to people who don't have righteousness of their own. And so Luther said, whoa, you mean the righteousness by which I will be saved is not mine? It's what he called a justitia alienum, an alien righteousness, a righteousness that belongs properly to somebody else. It's a righteousness that is extra nos, outside of us, namely the righteousness of Christ. And Amen. Luther said, when I, when I discovered that, he said, I was born again of the Holy Ghost. And the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. Amen. Amen. Whew. So the question is, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Not what do men say, what do religions say, what do various traditions say. The question is, what does the Bible say? And so when it comes to this issue of justification by faith, being declared righteous on the work of another rather than our own, the scriptures are clear. Notice with me from Titus 3, 5 through 7, he saved us. And all God's people said, amen. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. We didn't contribute anything to the work Jesus did on the cross. What he did was sufficient. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being declared righteous by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. But not by works we have done, by his grace we have been justified. Again, the scriptures go on. Uh, Romans 3, 23 through 25. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and are ultimately justified, declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that's a suitable sacrifice on the cross, by his shedding of blood. To be received by how? Faith. Faith. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but it's faith in the one who completely satisfied God that we are then declared justified by grace. So again, the scriptures go on. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies or declares righteous the ungodly, not the godly, but the ungodly, that person's faith is counted as righteousness. This is referring to Abraham in Romans 4, 5. But today that righteousness is the righteousness of Christ, which is being credited to those who come by faith. Uh, again, 11, 6, uh, Romans eleven six 6 says this, If it is by grace, the unmerited favor of God, it is no longer then on the basis of human works or effort. Effort, effort, or effort, there we go. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. 
So these are the scriptures. That's not it. There's so many. I could go on and on and on. But here's, here's a, one that kind of capstones it. For by grace, the unmerited favor of God, you have been saved, rescued through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift. And it's not the result of works so that no one may boast. Let me summarize these. And then I'll have to close uh, with something. But A right standing before God. Please hear me. A right standing before God is not something we earn as a reward by being or doing good. It is something we receive through repentance. Repentance is actually acknowledging that we are not good. And that we are in utter need of Jesus Christ to rescue us from our sin. And it's in that moment of humility... And yes, humiliation. Because it's never easy to admit our unworthiness or our moral bankruptcy. But in that moment, by repentance and faith, we are given as a gift Jesus' righteousness. A foreign righteousness. That which is outside of ourselves. And we are in that moment declared righteous. By a free gift of God's grace. We are born again. We become his children. The gates of heaven are thrown open to us. This justification. A declaration of being right or righteous. Before a holy God. Is based upon. Not my being good. Or doing good. But based solely upon Jesus' perfect work. For me in my place on the cross. He lived the life I was meant to live. Perfect. But I didn't. Then he died the death I was meant to die under the wrath of God. So when I come to him in repentance and faith, he not only forgives my sin, but credits to me his righteous standing before his Father. For by grace are you saved. It's not how good you can be. It's owning the fact that you can't be good enough. It's not how righteous you can act. It's admitting your unrighteousness. He justifies the ungodly, not the godly. I'm going to close with another great theologian. He's going to share with you the the beauty of these insights in your life. This great theologian's name is Bart Millard. He's the lead singer of a group called Mercy Me. Let's enjoy this together, and then I will close us in a word of prayer. There's got to be more than going back and forth. you to amazing grace 
stretch like this and wrap him up in righteousness. But that's exactly what he people said hallelujah hallelujah for by grace you have been saved through faith and it is not of your own doing it is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast in God's holy presence for Jesus Christ was the perfect sacrifice there's nothing you can add to that I just want to say that Maybe you've been one of those people who have been duped into thinking that you're a good person. Let me talk with your closest loved one. We'll talk about just how good you really, really are. Or let me see you in your private moments when you're all alone. The reality is there is none good, no, not one. There is none that is righteous or does righteousness, no, not one. We all stand in need of a relationship with the living God through the person of Jesus Christ alone, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. If that is what you're interested in, I want to invite you to talk to me. I will come back to the back of the, or the exit, 
and uh, spend some time out there. Just come up to you and say, hey, Pastor Bill, I'd like to know more about this. And we'll have a conversation. I'd love to do that with you. But if you're here today and you are truly saved by the grace of God, I just want to end with this thought. I can't go any further with it, but I want to end with this thought. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So what role do good works play in our relationship with God. We are not saved by our good works. We are saved for the purpose of good works. Good works play a necessary role in our relationship with God, not to give us a right standing before God. Our justification is based solely on the work of Jesus on the cross. He makes us flawless. But good works play a necessary role in our sanctification or the living out of the Christian life by becoming good and doing good as God's child. So good works are not the root of our relationship with God, but they are a very necessary fruit of our relationship with God. Let's pray. Father, there is so much beauty uh, in these words, in these truths. And I just pray today that what little has been shared can be used by your spirit to maybe prod us a little bit. To make us honestly question uh, what is the basis of our standing with you. If it's not solely the work of Christ on the cross. If it's not solely faith alone in Christ alone by the grace of God alone. Then we are not in a good place. I pray that we would seek out that answer. But Father, if we are in that place as truly your children, help us to understand that if we've been justified, it must of necessity lead to sanctification. We must also go on to live out this life in ways that are good and beautiful for you, our Father. Help us not to be satisfied in just having prayed a prayer, or be satisfied in just doing good works. Help us to be secure in Christ, living out of that love relationship, a life of beauty and good. That is your desire in each and every one of our lives here today. Thank you, Father. Thank you for amazing grace. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen. Next week, I am a disciple. Woohoo! Come on back. <laughs>